From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we have an exciting full episode piece where we talk with researcher and PhD candidate Eric Nielsen about his study into the behavior of wolves in the Athabasca oil sands region. But first, we have some headlines for you. species has been discovered. In 2015, a huge rat fell from a tree felled by a logger on the island of Vangunu, meeting an untimely demise but piquing interest of researchers who had been searching for an animal matching this description for over 20 years. Locals of Vangunu had been telling scientists of the existence of a giant coconut-eating tree-dwelling rodent for decades, but until this event no one had been able to find the creature due to its rarity. Possum-like and about one and a half feet long, this big rat likes to crack open coconuts and other nuts with its strong teeth to get to the meat inside. A journal of mammalogy paper published in September 2017 confirms that this is indeed a new species, the first new rodent species to be discovered in the highly biodiverse Solomon Islands in over 80 years. This designation will allow scientists to seek protection for this animal as it is likely endangered due to rapid destruction of its forest habitat by logging on the island. 90% of the Solomon Islands trees have already been forested, squeezing the rats into a smaller and smaller area. Nova Scotia's government has introduced its first carbon pricing legislation in the form of a proposed cap-and-trade system, a move towards fulfilling the federal mandate on all provinces to price carbon by 2018. Details have not yet been released on cost or impact of the new system, but Nova Scotia Environment Minister Ian Rankin has said that this information will be included in regulations being written up to accompany the legislation. A cap-and-trade system involves setting a hard limit for carbon emissions for industries where companies that are exceeding the limit will have to buy credits for overage emissions from other companies who are emitting less. This creates an incentive for companies to cut emissions to save money. Nova Scotia's plan will bring on 20 major corporations as mandatory participants, including many in the power and gas industries. Some are criticizing the government's decision to offer free carbon credits at the outset of the program, but without further details on the plan, it's hard to say how effective it could be. Big news came out last week. TransCanada Corporation has cancelled its $15.7 billion proposed Energy East pipeline. 
As can be expected, many environmental activists, First Nations groups, and some politicians opposed to the project are celebrating this decision. Executives in the oil business and some politicians supporting the pipeline are disappointed. Suncor Energy Incorporated, Canada's largest oil, gas, and refining company, had hoped Energy East would allow it to replace U.S. and offshore oil at its 137,000 barrel per day Montreal refinery. According to spokeswoman Sne Sital, quote, we supported the Energy East pipeline because it would have provided supply options and access to Western Canadian crudes for our Montreal refinery, end quote. But according to Adam Scott, a senior advisor at the environmental group Oil Change International, quote, TransCanada walked away from the project because they realized that Energy East would never be allowed if its full climate impact was accounted for. Energy East was a disaster waiting to happen, end quote. Stay tuned to Terra Informa in the coming weeks for a more in-depth story on the Energy East pipeline decision. Those were our headlines for this week. Now on to our main story. Terra Informers Carter Gorzitsa and Charlotte Thomason interviewed researcher Eric Nielsen about his recent study into the effects of human disturbance in Alberta's oil sands region, like tailing ponds and pit mines, on the hunting behavior of wolves. Stay tuned, his results might surprise you. in the Athabasca region on wolves and moose deaths. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what your research is, Eric? The work I uh, did for my PhD was looking at the possibility that human disturbance in the oil sands has created a disruption to the moose-wolf relationship. So this is this very important, tightly linked um, species system. And what I was looking for specifically was the possibility that wolves avoid the human areas in a way that gives the moose a refuge. So that's a term we use a lot in ecology, a prey refuge, where basically the amount of mortality they experience due to predation is lower. And it could be for multiple reasons, but in this case it was the idea that spatially the wolves were just using areas further away than the moose. So that was sort of the broad hypothesis we were we were looking into. And so for the paper that uh, we just published in Ecosphere, we were looking specifically at the locations where wolves kill moose. So that really kind of drilled into this issue of where the predation is happening. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of methods you use to research on this topic with the moose? So the 
main method we used was um, at its core something we call a selection function or a resource selection function, which is basically just an analysis that allows you to compare a location that was actually used by an animal um, to other places they could have used. The way you do that is by you need to get actual locations, and we do that by collaring the wolves and the moose. Um, in this case, we used collar data, GPS collar data from the wolves to um, predict where they had killed moose. And that's kind of um, an interesting process, but it, it sort of happens in the way you might expect. If you're looking at a, a distribution of where a single wolf has walked, and you can see all the places that she visited and the habitats that she used, where she's killed something, or her pack has killed something, is going to be a cluster of, of those locations. And so we use that information in the, uh, in the wolf data compared to some actual kills that we visited in, in the field. So we learned something about what a moose kill really looks like to predict where all the kills were. And so those kill locations became one of the inputs into these resource selection functions. How long were you doing this research for? Um, so my PhD was four years long, and um, a lot of it was at a computer. <laughs> so as you guys probably know, there's sort of a lot of um, GPS, GIS work that happens just sitting in your office, which is in a sense kind of sad because the work, the action is happening out on the landscape, and so that's kind of where you want to be as an ecologist. But um, I spent a good deal of time just kind of working with the data and, and running the analysis. At the beginning of my degree, I spent a couple seasons actually up in the oil sands area uh, tracking wolves. As I say, we wanted to actually go to some kills and see what they look like. And, you know, it, <laughs> it does make me kind of sad because I didn't do that as much as I would have liked, but um, it, it, it was really cool. And the, the way we did it was we would actually have the, the wolf GPS data coming from the satellite on the fly, like we'd be downloading it. And in the morning we would say, all right, they're over there. And we'd sled out there, find their tracks, and you just, you follow them until you find a, a dead ungulate, basically. And so that was great, that was really fun. During the, um, the Fort McMurray fire, that would be like considered a kind of like a human slash natural disturbance. So were you doing research during that? And then did you find that your kind of results were altered due to the fire? You know, it's funny because that I've been expecting that question to come up so often. Um, so, for instance, I just finished my PhD defense, and it's a really good, relevant question, and this is the first time it's come up. Uh, so the short answer is no. The fire was summer of 2016. So we had finished all of our data collection in 2014. What I can say, and I should say I don't, I don't really have the, the um, information to make any predictions about what may have happened, but that fire burned through an area where we had a couple wolves, uh, packs of wolves, at least one, as I recall. I mean, there's a lot of different things you might predict out of that. Fire is good for early successional ecosystem growth. You might have a bunch of deer going in and using the area, which will attract wolves. But in the sort of short term, I imagine they're gone. <laughs> they moved or didn't make it, that sort of thing. But again, I really want to stress, I don't know. We, don't, we didn't have any data. I really would have loved to have data from uh, during the period, but we, we didn't. So do you think that would be kind of an area that you could advance your research, or I guess somebody else could advance the research in that sense? Um, I think that it's, 
it's certainly something I'm interested in. But in terms of the stuff I did for my PhD, it's a little bit peripheral. Fire um, ecology is a huge field, and it's it's very important. It's obviously growing in the sense that with climate change, we're expecting more fires and um, more unpredictable timings of fires and so on. And so I actually have colleagues that work on um, how different mammals respond to fires. But in terms of the kind of human disturbance that I was looking at, which is really this sort of developmental disturbance where you you build a, a facility or you open up a mine or a road or something, it's um, maybe it's a little bit of a trivial difference, but it's sort of a, a separate kind of disturbance. Um, if we predict that the frequency and severity of fires is going to really change over the next 100 years, say, which I think is a reasonable prediction, there are a lot of critical questions to answer. Um, but it it's, would be a, a big extension of what I've done to, to, to get into that. So did your findings go along with your hypothesis? No. So again, the hypothesis was that wolves avoid the area and the moose are getting this free ride, but we found actually that wolves are killing moose near the mines, um, and it's sort of commensurate with the density of moose that's there. So the distribution of kills that we used in the analysis was compared to a sort of a spatial index of moose density. So where are there more moose, fewer moose, that sort of thing. And we found that as you get closer to mines, where there's moose, there's um, more kills happening. So in a way, you would kind of say that the wolves were using the mines to their advantage to kill the moose? So, yeah, that's a good question. And it's something we've thought about because um, it certainly looks like it could be the case. But that's a signal that we didn't test specifically. We didn't look at mechanisms by which the wolves could be getting this advantage. What we measured was just this um, variation in the distribution of, of moose killed locations. And so that's something that I'm very interested in, um, what is allowing them to do that. And so it's sort of a next step. If you could go back and like redo your research, what necessarily would you have changed about what you did? Like obviously, I guess if you're, you got like null back, then you would maybe want to change your hypothesis a bit. Well, no, I mean, I think that refuting a hypothesis it's never emotionally very nice, but it's it it should be very satisfying scientifically. And I, I try to sort of focus on that, the idea that we were able to show that this refuge is not happening. And we feel as though, and by we, I just sort of mean me and my supervisor, we feel as though we had the statistical power to answer the question. And I was always very engaged by that question. I really wanted to sort of... Elucidate if if we did think these moose were getting a free ride, and so I, in that sense, I feel pretty good about it that the 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 question was answered. So I don't know if it's a boring response, but I I probably would say I wouldn't have changed anything major. I mean, there's the thing I think about are next steps. You know, what kinds of things should happen next? So, for instance, one thing we talked about earlier was is there some kind of game going on right near the mines where the wolves are getting an advantage? To me, that's very fascinating. It's a very sort of behavior-specific kind of thing. It's not really as concerned with broader distributions. It's just saying, if a pack of wolves runs into a moose within 100 meters of the mine, is there some? Is that different than 10 kilometers away? You know, does the mine present a barrier that a barrier to the moose, but not to the wolves? Or 
are they more likely to encounter them because they're traveling along the edge, that sort of thing. Those are things I would love to move into. And, and the data we have, we'll be able to get at that a little bit. Um, so hopefully that's, we can get to that. How do you think the mines and the tailing ponds, how do you think those change moose behavior? So those questions um, came up in some other parts of my PhD where we were looking at um, the possibility that maybe in terms of the distribution there's no big effects, but individually these animals might be responding in, in small-scale ways to the to the mines. And we didn't find much, actually. The, basically, once you leave the area of the mine or the tailings pond, which is an area that's been, the habitat has basically just been removed. You know, there's no there's no space to live there, really. Once you get out of that and into the, the forest, um, both the species we looked at, wolves and moose, moose, were sort of operating at a couple different scales, so in terms of their broader distribution and where an individual might sort of select to use areas. It was pretty flat. Like, they didn't really respond that much to it. And that all sort of built into this general conclusion that predation relationship they have is has not been disrupted to any great extent by the mines. Uh, so for instance, one of the chapters I looked at was uh, to get at this question of refuge, I was looking at whether or not moose can sort of use human areas more in areas where there's a lot of wolves around. So there's a, there's a um, variation in the wolf distribution. And so I thought, okay, well, where there's a lot of wolves, maybe they're, the moose are going into town or into Fort McMurray or they're going up near facilities or that sort of thing. And, and that actually all came out um, null as well. And so in terms of this kind of spatial type question, we didn't see any really strong effects of proximity to these, to these human disturbances. With the reclamation of the oil sands, how do you think that will affect the wolf-moose relationship? The area that's sort of right near the mines operates, from the perspective of these large mammals, this, the way it does anywhere else, as far as we could tell from the analysis we did. And so I suspect that as that is reclaimed and starts to resemble the, the, the neighboring habitat, it should, you should expect to see returns of, of animals. I guess from an environmental standpoint, showing that the oil sands aren't affecting like the wolf moose population, how that stands up against like environmental activism against the oil sands? I think that it's, my hope is that it's, it's inference that anybody that's interested in discussing the oil sands will use, you know, I know this isn't really the case, but I, I don't think anybody interested in this discussion should be cherry picking their, their evidence. And so I would hope sure. that anyone interested in discussing the, the broader implications would use the best science they can, always. Do you have any, like, stories and specifics, like, when you were doing your sampling and out in the field of, like, I guess, like, sampling fiascos or something? Like, any, like, cool wildlife run-ins? One anecdote I always like to tell, and I'm, I don't know how interesting it actually is, is we, we came to a kill that was very fresh. It was, it was a, um, a young bull moose that had just been killed because it was about minus 20 maybe. It was quite cold out. Um, the blood was still flowing, so the wolves had certainly just been there. And so we, we arrived and we, you know, you could just sort of feel the wolves around. And we, um, we were skidooing, so they probably had taken off as soon as they heard us. But it was just a really interesting um, experience to be there 
so soon after after the event had happened. So that and that happened a, uh, a couple times. I, I would say most of the kills were were a little bit older, but it was it was neat to sort of be right on the the trails of the wolves. I wish I could follow that up with a cool like wolf sighting story, but we we didn't see them. I mean, there we were just sort of on their trail the whole time. I think typically maybe eight, six or eight hours behind them. So I guess quite a bit, but we were always just so hoping to see a wolf and we just never did. Lots of wolf tracks, easy to find those, but no actual wolf sightings. So the collaring and stuff for the moose and the wolves, was lots of that collaring that's already been done by? Yes, uh, professionals. Yeah. yeah, so this was all part of a broader project um, to looking at, the the use of um, rivers in the area, and the coloring happened for that. And I the the data were available to answer these supplemental questions, and that's where I I came in. Um, so yeah, I wasn't involved in the coloring, yeah. which is it kind of I, I mean that would be something very cool to see. But yeah, it, it involves helicopters and net gunning and so on. So not really in my skill set. Yeah. <laughs> so. You mentioned like when you went to the kill, it was in winter. So did you do your research? I guess it was all year round then. Actually, no. We we subset all of the data to winter. Okay. Um, the idea being that moose are a very important prey of of wolves in the in the winter. So our diet analysis showed that in the denning period, the wolves are switching a little bit over to beaver. There's a lot of beaver up in the area. Yeah, and and. Um, other work has shown that there's the packs kind of are a little bit less cohesive in the in the spring and summer. So in the winter they really pack up and they're able to get these bigger ungulates. And so we really wanted to focus on that that season. Um, and so that's when we did all of our site visits. And to be honest, tracking them would have been a whole different game in the summer. In the winter, you can imagine it. You just find the tracks in the snow and it's very easy. Um, so that allowed us to visit a lot of kills, but kill sites but uh, yeah we didn't we didn't do any in the summer so actually my thesis was was a winter season focus so in the summer you just wouldn't see as many moose kills since their focus is not really on that type of prey from the diet analysis it looks as though there would be fewer it's a little tricky in that there are moose calves around which are an attractive prey but, yeah, the work we did basically showed that they were kind of eating the... Because they're also... The wolves are traveling over s- shorter distances. They're in their den, um, especially the the um, breeding female. And so they don't... They're not sort of going as far afield. There's the, the distribution of their predation, their, their, their hunting effort is quite a bit different. But I should say that we didn't really examine exactly what the difference in the, the kill rates would be, the number of moose killed per, per season exactly. So that's a, for our system, that's a bit of an open question still. It's a good question. So with your research, where, where do you plan on going now? Um, so currently I'm doing a uh, postdoctoral position with my supervisor, just um, doing a kind of a broader review of what's going on with moose in the oil sands, which is, is a bit topical for a couple of reasons. Moose are important to the province, um, hunting First Nations. They're considered an indicator species to some extent for biodiversity health. 
And so there's this question of the best way to monitor them. And so I'm kind of digging into that a little bit. It's it's uh, looking a little more broadly at how moose are doing up uh, in the lower Athabasca area. So that's my current vocation. Yeah, I hope to continue doing this this type of um, wildlife biology. It's, it's, it's really great. You've kind of lived the conservation biologist dream with like moose and wolf. Everyone wants to do them, but no one ever yeah, gets to do definitely. it. So do you have any other macrofauna on your bucket list? My training in, in wildlife ecology actually came from primate studies. So my master's was, um, uh, the data came from a, a project in Cambodia, and I was looking at the distribution of gibbons. And to be honest, I actually would, don't tell my supervisor I'm saying this, but I would like to go back to primatology. That's something that really interests me. Mostly because I like being in tropical countries, but um, I think there's something about primate ecology and conservation that attracts me a lot. So um, maybe not the great apes. There's a lot of work being done there, but I've really enjoyed some of the monkey work that I've done. As far as North American mammals go, I kind of like them all, and I, that's maybe a silly answer, but you could. I would really love to work on any any system um, in North America. And, and I think that ecologists say that kind of thing quite often, you know, the theory and the, and the analysis is transferable, you know. What I did working with wolves wasn't really specific to wolf biology exactly. It's those kinds of ideas can be transferred to other animals. So I guess my answer is yes, all of them. All of them monkeys. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time with us, Eric. We really enjoyed having you. You're welcome. Yeah, my pleasure. I think we're good. That was Terra Informers Carter Krasitza and Charlotte Tomasin speaking with researcher Eric Nielsen. And that's all we have time for this week. If you've enjoyed our show, maybe you'd like to become a part of the community radio magic yourself. Terra Informers is recruiting, so if you want to join our team and share your stories, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca to learn more. Terra Informa is a production of CJFR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, situated on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. We love to hear from our listeners. You can also visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Shelley Jodwin. Amanda Rooney, Charlie Blay, Andrea Gallivan, Carter Krasitza, and Charlotte Tomasin. We've been your hosts, Dylan Hall and Jason Wong. Catch you next week on Terra Informa. Bye.